Hey listeners, hey Brian, welcome to the 39th episode of The Goods, a hey. film podcast. Hey Dan, we're back again to cover another movie in somewhat unusual circumstances today. Very much so. First of all, this is one of our vaunted birthday episodes. As keen listeners will remember, back in January, we had a special birthday episode for Brian. And that was the Rockfire Explosion. And we kind of decided that we'll do particularly meaningful movies, or at least something special, on our birthdays. And so I picked a movie that was very meaningful to me, it helped kick off a half-decade-long sort of obsession. And we'll talk about the movie in a second, but there's another very different reason that this is an unusual recording. In fact, an unprecedented recording in the goods film history, and that is that Brian and I are sitting in the same room. That's right. It may not change the experience for you very much, but we are together in person for the first time. Flesh and blood hasn't happened. COVID, we're all vaccinated. We had a little birthday shindig today. I rented out a movie theater to screen this film and another film, which I'll get to in a second as well with some family and friends, and now we're here to talk about it. And it's very cool to be back to doing things in person. Yeah, happy birthday, Dan. It was a lot of fun the way you set it up at the movie theater. I highly encourage anybody interested to take advantage of this offer while theaters are still offering it. Um, a lot of places have a deal where for like 100 bucks or 150 you and 10 friends or whatever the case may be, can rent out a theater space and show a movie. They might have a slate of movies that you can pick from, or if it's like the deal we had today, you can just pick whatever. Give them a DVD and they'll throw it on their projector. So I did a, a two-part screening in, in the spirit of Pixar. I did a short film to open, and the short film we watched was one that we've discussed on this podcast, and that was... The 1986 documentary, Heavy Metal Parking Lot. And that is, as you will recall from our April Fool's Day episode, a 15-minute or so VHS tape recorded footage of some people hanging out before a Judas Priest concert. And I gave this movie rave reviews when we discussed it in April. Go give it a listen. How would you describe the audience's reaction today to Heavy Metal Parking Lot? Muted. It was... <laughs> I think they were just kind of taking it in. Uh, I don't think, you know, you asked who had seen the featured film before. I don't think you asked anybody who had seen Heavy Metal Parking Lot before. Um, but yes, it rolled. And when we reached the end, there was there was silence a little bit. What, one person gave it some applause and that person was me. So <laughs> I think that's fair. Uh, and just for context, I mean, this was a... Uh, well, I guess only your kids were there, right? There weren't any other children. That's um, right. I, but it was billed as a family-friendly screening. and Heavy Metal Parking Lot has some, some curse words, some references to sexual activities and intoxication in various forms. So I think that may have been a little jarring for the audience. But 
it's been on my bucket list to watch that movie on a big screen. And so I wasn't going to pass up the opportunity, even if it was a little bit uh, of a tonal clash with our feature length film. Oh yeah, totally fair. I mean, <laughs> if I had that power, I would just be making them watch my YouTube clips and stuff <laughs> on a big screen. So I respect that. But that was prelude to our, our main attraction, the 1999 animated film, The Iron Giant, released by Warner Brothers Animation, directed by Brad Bird. And Brian, had you seen this movie before today? Yes. So I was curious about your exposure previously, too, because I think I saw this shortly after it came out and rented it from Blockbuster in like 2000 or 2001. And, you know, I watched it, didn't think too much about it for a while. And then in later years, it has had kind of a renaissance in public opinion and is now celebrated as, you know, a a new animation auteur coming to the front. And so I checked it out again in like, I don't know, 2013 or 2014. And, you know, I liked it a little more then. And I was glad to revisit it again after another kind of long stretch of time. Uh, One other thing is I remember reading the book it's based on, which I guess when it was originally published in the United Kingdom was called The Iron Man, but the American publication was called The Iron Giant. And I just kind of randomly picked it up in the kids section of a library at one point during summer reading. So, Yeah, it was written by a British poet. I don't have the name in front of me in notes, I don't think, but... Just a warning, readers, because we've had a busy day and we're doing this in person, my notes aren't quite as fastidious, so please forgive me some uh, skimping on the details. But um, yeah, I did read that it was based off of a, a British book that they were thinking of making into a movie for a while, the rights kind of hopped around, and eventually Warner Brothers picked it up. And Brad Bird, the director, as you mentioned, considered an auteur in animation, which is pretty unusual in American studio animation, at least pre-Pixar, other than like Walt Disney and Don Bluth, there aren't too many individuals who are known as the guiding, directing force of animated film. Typically it's a very, you, you give more credit to the studio vision, to the producer's vision, to the team effort and all of the very complex mechanical filmmaking pieces that go into it. But Brad Bird is one of the exceptions in that he has a very distinct voice and he does certain things in his movies over and over again that give him what you would consider an auteur status, which is uh, backed up by the fact that every single one of his animated films that he's made, with the possible exception of Incredibles 2, has gone down as some sort of animation masterpiece, including this first one. As Brian mentioned, this film underwent sort of a renaissance. It lost money on its release. Its budget was about $50 million, and it made barely half that in its theatrical release due to a number of reasons. One is that animated pictures were starting to lose some of their hotness, Um, This was when Disney was starting to lose its way on 
big money makers in animation. And also, they kind of rushed the movie out with a uh, half-assed marketing campaign. And it really just didn't get a lot of public interest in the time. But it's gone on to be screened on cable to get really strong reviews and, and retrospective thoughts. And the fact that Brad Bird has gone on to make The Incredibles, uh, Ratatouille, uh, The Incredibles 2. He made one of the Mission Impossible movies, and he made a live-action movie. It's probably his only feature-length dud other than financially other than The Iron Giant. And I would say, in general, in terms of critical reputation... His real only dud is Tomorrowland, a live action movie that I've always wanted to see because I, I love Bird, but I've never s- actually seen it. Yeah, uh, interestingly enough, which is maybe not so interesting, but the theater we were at today, back in 2015, they did a Kickstarter. It's a local theater. They used to just show older second run movies for cheap ticket prices, uh, but they did this Kickstarter because they needed to upgrade all their seats. And if you gave $250, which was apparently enough to pay for one individual seat, they would write your name on the back of the seat and give you free movies for a year. So I chipped into that. And so for pretty much all of 2015, I like lived at this theater and I saw every movie that they showed, which actually wasn't all that many. And since tickets only cost four dollars, I had to, I had to see like at least sixty to make my money back, and so I think by the end of the year they had shown like sixty three or sixty four movies. So I just barely squeaked past the, the uh, the mark, and I, I don't remember what my point was other than we were talking about Tomorrowland. Is that Tomorrowland what? was one of the twenty fifteen films? That is correct. So <laughs> thank you for jogging my memory. There we go. Yeah, we saw your name inscribed there when we were today, except it was your stage name, Count Simon Gauntley. Correct. So that was really cool. One more thought on Brad Bird. Before he he led this film, he had hopped around a lot of different animation studios, but one of his early gigs was he was a very early Klasky Shupo. How do you say that name? Do you know how to say it? Yeah, I think you got it right. Um, Which is a television animation company. That has done Rugrats, um, other shows you might have seen, but they also did the first couple, maybe just the first season of The Simpsons, as well as the Tracy Ullman shorts. And so he actually animated very early Simpsons, and he, in fact, directed a season one episode of The Simpsons, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. Yeah. If you queue up some of the early Simpsons on Disney+, Plus, it's interesting to see you know, maybe it's not such a stretch that that's their home now. Like, there's a lot of animation pioneers involved in the early years. I mean, like, Rich Moore is a name that you see in the credits who would go on many years later to direct Wreck-It Ralph and stuff and uh, Zootopia. And, like, a lot of the writers had hands in later animated pictures. Yeah, the more you read about animation the more you realize it's kind of like an incestuous thing in the studios where talent hops from place to place and you see the same handful of names with, you know, new names added every now and then popping up as kind of the leaders of these different projects and these strong voices in, in animation. So that, that doesn't surprise me. It's a small pond. 
Another interesting thing about this movie, as I mentioned, it was a box office flop. In fact, it was so much of a box office flop that it led to the dismemberment and shutdown of the Warner Brothers Animation Studio. So one of the main competitors to Disney in the realm of animation basically went out of business because of this movie. At least this was their last fully animated movie. Their their last animated their last movie period which had animation in it was Osmosis Jones, oh, which is a animation live action hybrid. And then they briefly tried to get it started back up with their idea was they were going to focus on classic characters in new modern animated and animated live action crossover movies. So they made the movie Looney Tunes Back in Action in 2003, which is a movie I would love to pick for this podcast sometime. Um, I haven't seen it in a long time, and I think it would be fascinating to rewatch. But that movie was also a box office failure, so the efforts to restart it did not really take off. I have never seen that one. I remember seeing the trailers and thinking, oh, they're trying to do like another Space Jam. And just never really finding out what happened with that. Except I now know that they are going to try that again. Make another Space Jam here soon. Yeah, yeah. Before we dive into the movie itself, I just briefly wanted to talk about why this movie was so meaningful to me. And that is... I don't know exactly what the time frame is. It's like sometime around 2008 to sometime around 2014. I was super duper into animation. Like I watched every single animated movie I could get my hand on. I read multiple books on the history of animation. I tried to watch whichever ones I could and write reviews about them on my our, our website, earnthis.net. And... I, I can't really pinpoint why I was so into it. I think part of it is that at the time that I was getting into it was like when animation was really elevating. It's like Pixar was releasing a masterpiece year in, year out. You had all sorts of hot new names hopping in. Illumination Entertainment, were they ever going to be start making films as, as great as the ones Pixar was? You had DreamWorks stepping up their game with Kung Fu Panda and How to Train Your Dragon. It was a really exciting time to be an animation fan back in the day. And I would say, I'm I'm not sure animation's quality on average has really diminished. I mean, Pixar isn't quite as reaching the same heights as they were from that 2005 to 2010 range. But animation is, you still get a lot of really impressive well-made, well-defined, mature, complex works that are just consummately professional and well-made and and, uh, enjoyable to watch. I I really like watching even the new ones that come out. I just watched The Mitchells versus The Machines, which is a... Sony, I think, made it. And it was produced by the guys who did The Lego Movie and Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. It's Miller, Lord and Miller, I think, are their, their names. And I don't know, you just have this whole universe of animated features that are getting released on, on the regular, and it's a good time to be an animation fan, I would say. Yeah, I agree. You know, this movie came out in 1999, which was the same year as uh, Disney did Tarzan. I think we got uh, Toy Story 2 that year. 
But then, of course, there was kind of a lull, at, at least at main studio Disney. You know, they headed into the, the era of, oh, the movies that are making money are the CGI movies. So that must be what's doing it, you know, not story or character or whatever. <laughs> so let's green light Chicken Little and uh, whatever else. I mean, it just there was like a five year span where nobody even remembers the movies. It's like, did you go and watch Home on the Range? I didn't. No. Yeah. But then I came back into it with um, in 2008 when they did Bolt, which is pretty good. And they just kind of had a have had a resurgence since then. And as you said, you know, we've had some good movies from folks like Blue Sky, which, of course, doesn't exist anymore because Disney bought Fox. But, you know, there have been other people dipping their toes into the animated waters. It's funny you mention Bolt because I think something that helped... Not to bring everything back to Pixar, because I think Pixar is responsible for a lot of both the financial and critical rejuvenation of animation in America. But Bolt was the first movie that the Pixar team had their fingerprints on when Pixar and Disney Animation merged in the late 2000s. Right. I've I've heard at least one theory that, like, after the merger, the bigwigs at Pixar almost started like putting more of themselves into the main studio releases than the Pixar branded stuff. And so you got more like Pixar sequels and I don't know. It's, it's interesting to think about and, you know, not to give undue praise to John Lasseter when that's a name that's kind of not in vogue right now. He's had some scandal, but he, you know, he became like the chief creative officer or something at Disney, which is like, dream job like who could even imagine a job like that right one Um, thing that pixar did that's kind of on theme for iron giant is that they really emphasized the voice of the artist like the movie was going to be one person's vision and they obviously wouldn't animate every cell or every i don't know what you call it when it's on cgi every frame themselves but they would be the kind of master of the story in collaboration with a small handful of other kind of, what do you call it, a brain trust? Is that what it is? With like a bunch of people who are really smart and kind of know what they're talking about um, at Pixar. And so Brad Bird, who was kind of an auteur before that was a thing at Pixar, fit naturally into Pixar, where he could be the kind of the guiding voice of the movies like The Incredibles and Ratatouille and etc. But yeah, to summarize... Animation, really meaningful to me for a very long time. I've kind of drifted from it, although I'm getting a little bit back into it now that my girls are old enough to start watching some of the movies and I can kind of revisit them and uh, experience them fresh. But Iron Giant in particular was one that really helped kick it off because it, along with a lot of the, the great movies being released in the mid to late 2000s and several others that... I really got a chance to kind of grow up with kind of fostered and nurtured that, that love of animation. And in particular, this was a movie the first time I saw it, I think it was on cable and I, I really loved it. It just sparked a, a passion and a, a joy in me that this was just a great story where all the parts fit together. And we'll talk more about whether that was my reaction this time around and what parts I liked more or less than I did before. But I, I still consider this a treasured movie in terms of 
defining who I am as a movie fan. So I was glad to share it with you, Brian, and, and with my friends and on a special birthday viewing and now a special in-person recording. So, Have you seen the movie before that phase? I, to be honest, it's a little fuzzy. I think I had seen it in the mid-2000s, late-2000s, like right around when this was kicking off. I don't remember exactly where it fit in sequentially, but I remember it being an important one in my interest in animation. Gotcha. So we watched the Signature Edition, which is the one released on Blu-ray. And the Signature Edition has two added scenes, one small scene of dialogue, and then an additional new scene. So they, they animated these scenes fresh, something like 15 or 20 years after the movie was made. It's like a director's cut concept, but with animation, which I've never heard of. Very wild to me. But I had never seen this cut of it before. And the main new scene we'll get to, we'll talk about either during our recap or afterwards, because I have some thoughts on it. But it is the giant sort of having a, a vision of something else. And I just thought it was so fascinating that they could make like a director's cut. Yeah, because... Generally, you think of a director's cut as being like they have access to some other reel of footage that that was shot but not included in the cut of the film that got released to theaters. But in an animated movie, you know, you write and record only what you're going to use. And, you know, if anything gets developed past that point, it's usually not going to be as far along as actually drawing all the drawings that you need. So there's just not this extra material lying around to make a director's cut. So what would that even mean? Uh, So seeing that it was the signature edition made a little more sense. Yeah, and apparently they had had it storyboarded and the voices recorded, but not actually animated. So it was at least partially there, but they had to to go in and actually produce it from, from all that. So, But I'm ready to hop into the movie. What about you, Brian? Let's go. So the Iron Giant opens in the Cold War. It is probably 1957, late 1957 or early 1958, because the headlines of the newspapers we see reference Sputnik, which was the USSR satellite that was launched in 1957. And our setting is a town called Rockwell, Maine, which is definitely a nod to the Norman Rockwell-esque small-town Americana feel of this town that we'll be spending the movie in. Yeah, if you've ever played the video game Destroy All Humans, which plays with tropes of a lot of 50s sci-fi B-movies, there's also a town called Rockwell in that one. I think it's in uh, Kansas or something. It's like the first town you go to while you're uh, abducting cows and stuff. Because in in that game, you play the alien and you're... (laughs) gradually dominating the earth. So I was actually cleaning up some popcorn from my spilled by my toddler during the very opening scene. But what I recall from the opening scene, an object from space crashes in the sea outside Rockwell. And we see that it is a, a huge sentient robot, at least 50 feet tall. And we, we eventually learned that this robot eats metal And in the subsequent scenes after the opening, we see it kind of wreaking havoc around Rockwell, taking chomps out of things for its metal, kind of wandering around and and 
confusing everyone. What Just, is this You know, thing? random onlookers are spotting it, and gradually the stories are spreading. Kind of like the opening of Godzilla 1954. Right. Oh, it's true. I hadn't made that connection, but yeah. And it's raising similar questions of how does a giant monster stay hidden and only be spotted periodically? Well, in this case, he's hiding in the woods. Yeah, so there's at least that answer. But I would say the movie, given that it's like a pre-cell phone footage video surveillance era, it's it did not seem totally implausible that the rumors could spread around a town without... I agree. Without, uh, you know something's happening, but you don't know quite what it is type of situation. And our protagonist is a nine-year-old boy named Hogarth Hughes. He's kind of lonely. He's kind of an outcast. His father died in the Korean War, which is very loosely hinted at. You kind of have to be looking for it to see references to it. But mainly he's got a single mother who's a waitress. They're struggling to get by. And Hogarth is just kind of out there, always fantastical and um, not getting along with other kids and seems to be getting into trouble all the time. And one night while his mother is working late, he wanders out and he stumbles upon the giant who has is caught in a electric power substation and is kind of getting shocked and jolted. And Hogarth flips the I don't think real power substations have a big on off switch, but he flips the big on off switch, which shuts down the power and this robot who is being electrocuted survives. Hogarth is able to save the robot. The robot comes to just in time to see Hogarth and identify him as the one who who kind of saved him. Also, let's reflect for just a moment on the fact that the boy is named Hogarth, which is a very (laughs) bizarre name that's never really explained. It's not explained, but it is lampshaded a little bit later when uh, one of the characters says, what kind of name is Hogarth? Who would name their kid Hogarth? And I think I kind of agree. So if you have a son, it's not going to be a Hogarth. That's not at the top well, of your list. I do like unusual names, but I, I think even if I personally were to to have that on a short list, which I don't think I would, it would be on the veto list for my wife, I think. Okay, well, yeah, mull, mull it around, uh, sleep on it for a little while. I do like unique names, I, I will say. Of course, because he's always has a fantastical imagination, his mom and the other people don't believe that he saw this giant robot And he spends the ensuing days going out searching for this robot again and finally stumbles upon him. And although Hogarth is frightened by this, the robot who has no memories of his past has kind of like latched on to Hogarth as the guy who saved him, kind of his now his guiding force. And so Hogarth and the robot kind of befriend each other. Hogarth teaches the, this robot some language, like he teaches the robot some words. Yeah, the robot is voiced by Vin Diesel, and Vin Diesel has really carved out a niche for himself, voicing big creatures with limited vocabularies. Because <laughs> he plays Groot from Marvel, right? Right. We get some really nice scenes of... Hogarth and the robot bonding and exploring the forest and trying out different things. Hogarth teaches the robot not just words, but what it's like to be a human and a person. They see a deer get shot, and Hogarth explains 
the concept of life and death and how killing is bad, but dying is a natural part of life. Did these scenes where the boy and the robot were bonding remind you of anything else? A couple things, actually, but I mean... We need to point out that this, you know, this movie came first, uh, 1999. If what you're going for is, for instance, How to Train Your Dragon, where it's a boy bonding with a pet, but even more so Big Hero 6, where it's a boy bonding with a robot pet friend. How to Train Your Dragon is the thing that I was thinking of in particular because there's a lot of parallels here where it's a thing that is very powerful but very childlike and innocent and the only one who really understands him is this young boy who's a friend to him and who knows that the rest of the world won't understand and appreciate him but comes to see how wonderful the creature is kind of in his own unique frame of mind i guess but yeah boy befriends a cool flying creature (laughs) <laughs> is very well established in animation at this point. If it's you work trip. that into your movie, you're going to make some money. Although, or maybe lose money. If right. It took a while to catch on. <laughs> As all this is happening, a government agent named Kent Mansley arrives in Rockwell to investigate all of the strange occurrences that have been happening. And he is kind of xenophobic. He's caught up in the the Red Scare, the terror of whatever force is out there, this kind of post-war intelligence spy era where you can't trust anything. And he, spoiler, ends up being kind of the villain of this because he's kind of the counterpoint to Hogarth's trusting inclusion of, of the big robot. And so we spend a significant portion of the film with this agent... Agent Mansley, trying to chase down what is the cause of all this when he figures out it's a big robot and Hogarth trying to evade detection. And he is actually pretty successful at avoiding that detection, both from society at large and Mansley in particular. But he faces the challenge of how do I feed a robot that eats metal, which doesn't really make sense to me as a thing. Like, why would you eat metal as an energy source? But, well, you know, a person is made out of meat. You know, we eat meat sometimes. <laughs> Some of us do. Uh, so, I don't know. Maybe. It's got what robots crave. I suppose. But he needs to find a source of metal for the Iron Giant. And he does end up finding a place. It is a junkyard. A scrapyard. And it's owned by this beatnik character named Dean McCoppin who had been kind of hanging out on the fringes of the movie prior to this, showing up in the coffee shop where Hogarth's mom works. And um, a really interesting character. I have some thoughts on this character, but Brian, you pointed out it's yet another beatnik movie for us. That's right. Prominent featuring of a beatnik, maybe second among films that we've covered, only behind A Bucket of Blood. And so Bucket of Blood was made in 1959. This film is set just before then. I could definitely see this beatnik character, Dean, being among that uh, popular crowd in that film. He's uh, making art out of the scrap that he collects. I guess he kind of has a dual business where 
he's always scrounging around town collecting up junk pieces of metal and then some of it he sells and other parts of the material that he collects he turns into kind of art kind of abstract sculptures i really like this character i think he's first of all he's just very likable he's very kind of low-key compared to some of the other high-strung characters we see but one thing I caught this time around that I really thought of is he's kind of a role model for Hogarth in what you can be as a sort of outside of the mainstream culture figure who still is happy and thriving on their own because it kind of seems like Hogarth needs something to latch onto, something that is his vision for like, how do I thrive in this world where I think it's suggested at one point that he skipped a grade or something like that and just doesn't fit in with anyone else. What does it mean to be someone who has all these brilliant, crazy ideas and doesn't fit in with everyone else? Like, what what could that be for me? And specifically, I think he's looking for a male role model. Like, that's something that's missing in his life. Right. And so we've got kind of these dual visions of what a man in the 50s could and should be with this paranoid government agent, you know, who's got the suit and tie and a a quote-unquote real job, uh, but is also, like, crazy and dangerous and unhinged versus this beatnik guy who is, as you said, kind of on the fringes of society and maybe not the ideal that many people picture. You know, he's got a little facial hair. He's not the clean-cut G-man. And he's got, like, a black turtleneck, and he lives in a junkyard. Right. But he's ultimately going to emerge as the the favored figure. This For is sure. the guy you should admire. Yeah. During this, I would say, middle third of the movie, the promise of the premise, if you will, we see Hogarth and then also Dean just interacting a lot with the robot, doing little fun things with the robot, teaching this robot about life and stuff. And did you have any favorite little vignettes with the robot? My favorite part, and I remember this moment being in the trailer, is when they're at the old swimming hall and Hogarth's already swimming around and then the robot takes a running start and does a cannonball into the lake and just completely drains the lake and you know just a cataclysmic tidal wave out through the woods blasting everything around and that had me laughing because Dean gets swept away on his chair out into the middle of a road yeah hilariously animated that's a that's up there for me for sure There's another bit early on when Hogarth is still trying to hide the robot. And we learn that when the robot is damaged and it disassembles, it kind of can self-heal. Its various pieces can kind of come back to where the head of the robot is and reassemble itself. And one of the hands is free. And Hogarth is trying to get the hand back to the robot. And somehow the hand ends up inside the house. And just this comedy of errors of Hogarth trying to get this hand, giant hand of a robot, which is the approximate size 
of a very large dog out of the house. And there's in particular one bit where he's supposed to be saying grace at dinner. And he is like exaggeratedly saying grace, but also is like talking to the hand of the robot. And then he he says stuff like, get out of here, Satan. (laughs) And things like that. And it's, it's a very... It's one of the funnier moments of the film. Yeah, and the hand is also moving like a dog in some ways. <laughs> uh, it has one of its fingers up like a head, which there's no real reason why it should be doing that. The The finger has no eyes to look around or anything. It seems like it would just use them all like legs to pull itself along. Um, but they definitely used it in like a, a zoological pose to, so we can kind of more easily empathize and impart feelings onto this hand. Definitely. And another kind of recurring thing is Hogarth, of course, being a geeky, imaginative elementary schooler in the 50s is all about the Silver Age comics. I guess that's what you would call that, Age of Comics. And he shows his comics to the robot. And an important contrast is Superman versus Atamo. I don't know if Atamo was a real character or not. I assume he was because most of the references here are to real things. But Superman, obviously the hero, always uses his powers for good. The robot likes to play as Superman when they're playing games. And Atamo, the evil robot, who is the bad guy, uses his power for evils and is the example of what not to be. And guess who owns Superman? Warner Brothers. Oh, interesting. So after we get several of these with Mansley continuing to chase down the robot, we do hit the climax where Mansley is able to figure out that Hogarth has been involved with this robot and knows where the robot is. And he, like with one phone call, basically calls in the whole army, which I didn't, seems implausible in a reviewing, but that's okay. It kind of, it works here. And he, they basically go and try to hunt down the robot which Dean and Hogarth are able to disguise for a bit, but we're kind of entering the climax where it's going to be a face-off between the army and this iron giant. And eventually the army sees the the giant moving and they determine it's a threat to, to national security and they start bringing in all the guns against the iron giant. And so something we've seen is that the giant is, like, programmed to react to weaponry defensively. And this is tied into that dream sequence we mentioned as an aside. And I guess this was something new in the signature edition, because I didn't remember seeing this previously. But we get kind of a glimpse when the giant is dreaming of what his original purpose was like on his home world in space. I guess he was used either. He was a soldier in a war or he was like a something used remotely by one side of a war. And he had an explicitly military purpose, but once they see the hunters shoot the deer and Hogarth says, guns are bad. We get a couple moments where the giant, if he sees even like a toy gun, will go into full war mode against his own will. 
he'll just automatically turn into a killing machine if a gun is pointed at him. And so now we're in a situation where a bunch of guns are pointed at the robot. So what's going to happen? First, the the robot kind of hangs in there and he is protecting Hogarth and trying to escape these missiles and bullets and stuff flying at him. But at one point he gets hit pretty hard and he falls holding Hogarth and Hogarth is injured in the fall. And having learned about life and death from Hogarth, he sees the injured Hogarth and thinks that Hogarth is dead and becomes very angry. And that in conjunction with seeing the guns triggers these kind of repressed wartime instincts into becoming a full-on super robot weapon in like a truly terrifying sequence when we see all these super futuristic ray guns and vaporizers and stuff just completely demolishing these tanks and battleships. Yeah, he becomes like a War of the Worlds tripod thing with like all these tentacle guns and things sticking out of his head. And one design element of the the robot thus far is he had this dent in his head to kind of signify the amnesia or whatever the robot equivalent of amnesia is that he had when he crash landed on Earth. And this bump kind of pops out when he goes into robot mode as if he's like remembering the thing that he was initially designed for. Um, it's kind of a cool visual cue for that. Eventually, they're just comp- he's just completely mowing everything down and the agent as well as the general for the army who's been kind of brought in are like, well, what can we do? And the agent says, you got to nuke him. So they start prepping the nuke because, of course, what was the biggest, most powerful threat that you could have in the 50s? The thing that everybody was scared of, it was the nuclear weapons. So I'm glad that it played a central element in the story. here. Right, and they did a good job foreshadowing it along the way. You know, we get a scene where Hogarth is in class and they're watching Duck and Cover. Right. And so they have this idea to nuke the robot while it's away from the town. But Hogarth, who again, who had just been injured, he's still alive. He wakes up and he's actually able to successfully talk down the robot and prevent it from inflicting mass damage on the town. I think the combat sequences had been fairly artfully edited such that in kind of Avatar The Last Airbender style, most of the soldiers actually avoided death. So the robot hadn't actually done anything all that bad in terms of human suffering at this point and and is able to talk him down. But Agent Mansley, who's still in kind of his frenzy, orders the missile fired to where the robot is, which at this point is downtown Rockwell where all of the characters of the story so far are present. So now we see this nuke in the sky flying straight towards where everyone is. It made me think a little bit of Return of the Living Dead to spoil a movie that we talked about several months ago that climaxes in, you can't escape, so just nuke it all, basically. Right. And if that had been where things had actually ended, it would have been very like Return of the Living Dead. Right. But... The robot, in a final act of heroism, mimicking Superman, flies up to space or like the upper portions of the atmosphere and crashes into the nuke, detonating the nuke, destroying himself, saving Hogarth and the city of Rockwell, the town of Rockwell, and becoming a hero 
for the town. And that's kind of how the movie hits its the end of its climax. It's a very emotional moment because he remembers Hogarth saying from previously in the movie, you can be whoever you want to be. And we kind of have this Atomo versus Superman dichotomy. And he says, Superman, right as he crashes into the nuke. And a, a tear could trickle down many a man's eye, I would say, watching that sequence there. It's an emotional moment. I also like how he works in a line that uh, Hogarth told him when he was trying to hide him at the beginning of the movie when he says, I go, you stay, no following. As and then he as shoots up into his face and <laughs> hits the nuke. Yeah, I guess they couldn't really follow him. But no, that that was a good... I, I'm going to talk about this, but this movie does a, a lot of setup and payoff across its, its fairly brisk... It's an hour and 26 in the original version and an hour 30 in the signature edition. So uh, it's got a lot of story packed into an hour and a half. So at the end, in the denouement, the falling action, we see the town of Rockwell has erected a statue of the Iron Giant. Although I wanted to, to home in on that for a second. I, I couldn't really tell how big the statue was. Like... I don't think it was full size, but it still looked pretty big. So, like, if it's going to be that big, why not make it full size? Or, I don't know. That's a good point. I, did, I didn't think about that. I think it was, you're right, not full size for sure. But we have talked about in the past how we have very specific characters' perspectives on things. Imagine you're a random resident of the town of Rockwell. How do you know that the robot is the hero? Why are you thinking that this robot is the hero of the story? Because here's what you would see. Oh, with what you've seen. Yeah, tell us what you would see. I think you would see, hey, this weird alien robot is here. We called in the army. Oh, shoot. It's now destroying our army. Oh, shoot. There's now a nuclear missile in the sky, and it blew up the robot, and the robot died. Okay. Well, I guess we defeated that robot. Like, how would you know that the the whole self-sacrifice element of it, I feel like... Hogarth and co. did a good job of getting the story out there. It was good PR. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. So the robot does save some kids immediately before the army attacks him. There's, like, kids watching him from on a rooftop in the town, and he kind of dives in and does a football catch to save the kids. Right, that's true. But you're right. There'd be a lot of back and forth, and... What did most people actually witness and what would they remember? And yeah, just because we have seen the whole movie doesn't mean they have. So, But I would say it, it certainly works. And given that you're in the main, you're in Hogarth's head, it's, it's a very satisfying payoff. But also it gave Dean a job because it, it, the statue was presumably made by him out of metal. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it's not presumably. It is explicitly said. Okay, because the mom says that. Right. right. Yeah. And... And then also there's a kind of tacked on romantic epilogue as well, where Hogarth's mother and Dean are a couple. So it's a little abrupt. I mean, early on, you kind of see him flirting with her at the diner, but I think it's important and and not completely tacked on because I see a major theme being this masculine role model dichotomy between Dean and Kent Mansley. Because Mansley also inserts himself into their life to a pretty big degree because he rents a room in 
Hogarth's house. So he's kind of like suddenly there at the breakfast table in a weirdly fatherly invasive role. I think that's a really good point. And that also relates to one of my favorite comic beats of the movie, which is that Agent Mansley always has a diminutive name for Hogarth. And we get at one point a supercut of all of those. Where are you going, sport? What are you doing, champ? (laughs) How's it going, Haas? Yeah, all sorts of things like that. It's pretty good. But the movie ends with... So we had seen the robot's ability to heal itself, as I mentioned, to assemble all its parts. And the one thing that survived from the nuclear blast was a screw from the robot's head, which Hogarth has in his room. And one night he wakes up and the screw is doing its flashing light thing that it does when the robot is attempting to heal itself. And we see the screw kind of bouncing and trying to get out of the bedroom. And all of a sudden we see all these different parts of the robot, which apparently had been scattered in the nuclear explosion, reassembling in, I guess it's Iceland. And the, the movie ends with a shot of the robot coming back online in Iceland as its parts are reassembling. So I think from the first time I saw this movie, this moment was like the one thing that persisted in my memory most. I just really love the idea of, you know, he the robot died in space or was blown apart in space. So he's got little bits of himself scattered all over the planet. And then we see him hopping like through the snow. And uh, in my memory, we saw other parts in other places too, like through the desert and through the, which we don't actually see. But in my memory, it was like, oh, and you got ears in the rainforest and you got (laughs) kneecaps in the deserts of the Gobi and just, but I mean, you can picture that that's how they all came together. And I really, really love that ending shot. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I will say, I think I might've had a preference if they would have left it more to the imagination. I I can see what you're saying about the kind of the appeal of that image for sure. Mm -hmm. But to me, wouldn't it have just been like a lovely ending if... It had ended simply with the, the screw coming back online. Oh, yeah. And then like he just opens away. the window and the screw rolls away. And that would work, too. Left to your imagination what happened to the robot. Because then you can say, oh, where is the robot? Is, he, is the robot back in space? Is the robot even anywhere? Because there's also this discussion of the soul. Mm-hmm. And we see when the robot blows up, it looks like a star in the sky, which had been a point of reference for the soul earlier. And if you if it had left that ambiguous to me that might have had the potential to be a little more powerful, but that's not to say I dislike the way that it ended at all, because it is very satisfying to know that our, our buddy made it through it all. That's a good point. I think your ending could work as well, but it's another example of the setup and payoff because earlier in the movie, we had a sequence where For you know, sure. he got injured and, and it showed how he could reassemble. And that ends the iron giant 1999. Brian, let's talk about some some good things and some not-so-good things about this film. Okay. So I think the number one good thing as you watch this movie is the script is just really, really good. This, This is a phenomenal screenplay, very tight. The characters all work. There's a lot of setup and payoff. It manages to establish Hogarth as this kind of outsider And then the robot also as this really just memorable sort of animal-like character. And 
everything just fits together really nice and it's um it's just a really good story it's actually more of a drama than it is a comedy it's got funny bits but it's it's very kind of serious about the arc and its themes and stuff and i was kind of blown away as i was watching this time about just how good and how tight it is as a story as far as good things I'm a big fan of the Cold War setting and themes that are explored here. And it's obvious that Brad Bird is a huge fan because a bunch of his movies, I mean, he hasn't done all that many, but he really likes to draw on Cold War themes and aesthetics. Uh, There's a ton of it in The Incredibles. And I'll, I'll go on in a little bit with some more parallels between this movie and his next film the incredibles but just the way things look and the tech yeah it's it's very distinctive and evokes the cold war space race feel for sure mm-hmm. tomorrowland had a lot of that as well um i just kind of a return to these right. visuals and it also captures a good sense of place pretty well i mean i was talking a lot about what was happening in the town and how often in animated kids movies are we thinking about this town as like a living breathing setting it does a great job of like defining that setting and making it look and feel like a just a classic old school american mid-century town norman rockwell painting rockwell maine it really felt like a, a place to me i also think that it's a phenomenally well animated film there's a lot of things it does really well. Some of the compositions are amazing. Just like you could take still frames of them and they're just well designed in terms of conveying what that moment is supposed to convey, whether it's that this robot is freaking huge and Hogarth is tiny, or I don't know, that it's like this huge sprawling forest that they're in, or it's this small town, or it's just also visually well set up. It works really well. And this movie has a blend of CGI and hand-drawn animation that is a really smooth transition between them. I actually just watched Spirited Away recently, and that's another movie that blends CGI and hand-drawn animation. And that one, you always see the seams when it's going from the the hand-drawn to the CGI. But here, I felt like it blended really smoothly. Right, it was not jarring at all. And I was reading the Wikipedia article about the movie, and it said that, that it was a fusion of the styles. And I had to think back. I was like, is it? Because, you know, it's the giant that is the CG stuff. And maybe a few other, maybe like some missiles or something. But when you have it be the, the tech components... It works pretty well because, like, that's the stuff you expect to be computery and metallic. But yeah, I, I mean, I think of other things where computer elements get used, and it's always sort of uncanny valley and kind of sticks out. Like, I mean, they did some of that in Futurama, where like the ship will fly through, and that's three D, but everything else is two D, and it's kind of just a little bit strange. And here, you don't notice that, right? One thing in particular I wanted to call out about the animation is particularly in the first half of the movie as Hogarth is just getting to know the robot. This movie does such a good job of making you feel how huge this Iron Giant is. Everything from the sound design to the 
huge sprawling movements that like he'll take one stride and it'll go, you know, what feels like a mile in one stride. And the way that every creaking sound just echoes is I was glad I got to see it in a big screen with like a full sound system because you can just feel like when he thumps down to the ground, how big and heavy he is. And it's an easy thing to say, but a hard thing to convey, I think, on film is like capturing the scope and size and magnitude of these fantastical creatures that are supposed to be huge. And I think this movie really does it. It really makes you feel how big he is. Yeah, I remember a moment when Hogarth is out in the woods and he's walking along and the giant like swoops down, like drops down on his knees to look at Hogarth all of a sudden. And, you know, to your toddler daughter, it was like a jump scare. She gasped that this huge robot suddenly is, is making this quick movement. And it was a lot of the things that the giant did were breathtaking in their scale. And I think this movie kind of set a template for things that Brad Bird would continue to do well, which is really conveying the themes of the movie and the setup of the characters in very visual elements and having the kind of visual spatial component of the film define the story and work in conjunction with the story. I think every single one of his movies from the Incredibles to Ratatouille to the Mission Impossible movie, I haven't seen Tomorrowland. That's the only one I haven't seen, but they all do a great job of having the, the visuals of the space. That's a very tactile feeling. He, he has a great sense of, of physical visual space um, that, that ties his work together. He also has some storytelling elements that tie his stories together, his, his movies together. And this has a lot of them about like a, a person or a creature that is like a great powerful force that must figure out how to use its power for good, basically. And I think this movie does a good job of avoiding any questionable elements of the, pol- the political outcomes and political considerations of that general premise that I think if you start looking at the Incredibles movies, I have very minor, but certainly some reservations about the politics of those movies every now and then. This one avoids that for me. Yeah, I watched a YouTube video essay about how in uh, in her viewpoint, Brad Bird is like a, a Randian political voice channeling some of the views of like Ayn Rand. Right, this idea that basically for, for a society to reach its peak potential, we need to embrace the greatness of the people who actually have the greatness within them. Right. It's like we need to let exceptional individuals come to the fore to the point that they leave the rest of us behind. Uh, You know, we don't, we can't be putting shackles on Harrison Bergeron. We need to let the, the beautiful brainiacs become our masters. Again, that political element it's much less through. prominent it's not really it's not really in this one it's it's more like one reading of the incredibles and also tomorrowland because tomorrowland had a lot of it and that specifically was the movie she was reviewing but in that there's like a secret society of scientists that they like have access to this future world 
So that's kind of the flip side of, of the types of stories that Brad Bird likes to tell. But here, given that it's like a, a alien robot that is struggling to survive, that is like the super powerful force, and he kind of needs to overcome his more dangerous instincts, I feel like it's not as prominent here. Right. I had some other little things that I liked about this movie. <laughs> There's some really funny stuff. We've already listed some of my favorite funny moments. Um, so I like the goofy art that the, the beatnik makes, but I think we've hit most of my, my main positives for this. Brian, did you have other things that you kind of wanted to discuss here? I liked all the stuff with Hogarth being a fan of 1950s sci-fi. Like one night his mom is out working late and he watches a movie on the TV with a killer brain crawling around on his brainstem which I think is a nod specifically to Fiend Without a Face, which was a horror movie, it says, from 1958. But just that they worked in, you know, nods to a uh, culture that I'm certainly a fan of. Uh, even the poster for The Iron Giant, it says, it came from outer space, which is very much a hallmark of, uh, you know, alien invasion movies of the time. Right. And in that fake movie that we saw... This was the first time I noticed how they made the main actors and actresses of this movie within a movie very stiff and bad and over the top, which I appreciated. Right. And I like the character design, which I think was one example of how you can see the style of this one carrying over into The Incredibles. The people, to me, look pretty similar to the way they do in that movie. Specifically, I think Hogarth basically has Dash's face. Like the, the hair is different, but the facial features are very similar. And then this is more just an interesting thing than a positive necessarily. But uh, this movie, like The Incredibles, has a cameo from Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston, who were old Disney animators. They were members of the Nine Old Men who you may know even more about than I do, but it was like the original animation team that Disney recruited, kind of Disney's disciples. Um, but in Incredibles, Frank and Ollie are the ones who, they say, that was old school. No school like the old school. <laughs> couple other cool things on the voice acting, now that you brought it up. Harry Connick Jr. plays Dean, the beatnik. And I really like Harry Connick Jr., he sings some really jazzy, fun Christmas songs, which is the main thing I know him from. So because of that, I can never tell if I'm listening to Harry Connick Jr. or Michael Bublé. Uh, because they, they both sing Christmas songs, and I think they have similar voices. I think they have similar voices, but the Harry Connick Jr. songs I've listened to, they're kind of more fun and jazzy, whereas Michael Bublé does more like standards and expressive on the side of the music, but I can definitely see the, the comparison. I do like Harry Connick Jr. Um, he's got an album, I think it's called Songs I Heard or something, but it's it's all musical numbers from like 60s and 70s family musicals. Mm. So it's like Willy Wonka and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and I think there's a Dr. Doolittle song. Cool. Yeah. Jennifer Aniston plays... Hogarth's mom, which sometimes when I know who the voice actress is, it really pulls me out. And this is one where it pulls me out a little bit when I hear her and I hear Rachel from Friends. Another one is in A Bug's Life, 
Um, Elaine from Seinfeld plays the princess. And ever since I learned that, I can only hear Elaine when I hear that character. And then the FBI agent, Kent Mansley, is played by Christopher McDonald, who the main thing I know him from is in Happy Gilmore. Is it Happy Gilmore, the one where he uh, plays the, the golfer? Well, you said it's Shooter McGavin, it's, right? That's, yeah. definitely, that's definitely Happy Gilmore. I've yeah. only seen that movie once, but... Shooter yes. McGavin is the villain of that, and he, he's the guy who voices Kent Mansley. Who eats pieces of shit like you for breakfast. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> as far as not-so-good things on this movie, mine are, my list is, is short. One is, I feel like the scene added to the signature edition, I don't like. It's kind of cool-looking, and I like it in that sense. But from the story perspective, I don't like it because I, I like that the giant doesn't know anything about his past and, and we don't know anything about his past and we gradually piece together that he's a weapon and only for it to like really go over the top right away. And for us to get that much foreshadowing on it loses the impact of seeing him go full weapon a little bit, I would say. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Because, I mean, even without that scene, we would still understand what was happening. Right. Very minor thing. As the robot is launching to throw himself into the nuke, Hogarth whispers, I love you, which has always made my eyes roll. I feel like we know at this point that he loves the robot. We don't need to hear him say it. That didn't achieve anything for me. But I'm getting very nitpicky at this point <laughs> if I'm pulling And the robot the doesn't say it back, so... <laughs> <laughs> I also mentioned that I feel like you could remake the ending with a little bit more ambiguity and yeah that that kind of wraps up my list of not so good things because I didn't have too many what about yeah you, I also did not have many um one thing though about the dream sequence is it raises the fact that there are more giants out there that's a good there's point. a whole planet worth of giants because we see like a, a military regiment of them right. marching I don't have much that stuck out to me as being bad, depending on your political leanings. There's nobody in this movie who isn't white. That's true. <laughs> of course, I mean, it's in Maine, for one. Still a very um, a pasty place, I think. Um, and it's got this 1950s setting, but I think were they to make it now, they would find a way to work some diversity in there. That's probably true. Where I thought you were going with that is when you talked about the political leanings of the movie is he actually has a line that I think is really iconic where he says, I am not a gun. The ro- the oh, that's says. true. There is some heavy handed guns kill. Um, but I mean, I, regardless of your stance, I don't think you can really argue that statement. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, that is what they're for. The discussion just comes down to when is there a reason to kill? Sure. But I am ready to move to our signature section. Is it good? This is where Brian and I place this movie on an eight-point goodness scale. From the very bottom of our scale, that is a one out of eight. That is very not good. All the way up through our eight out of eight, our masterpiece rating, Tour Day Good. So, Brian, is the Iron Giant good? I thought it was really good. I am going to give this one a 7 out of 8. Exceptionally good. I'm a big fan of the vibe, which, as we've so often discussed, is very important. Obviously, 
I have my personal fandom of 50s sci-fi pop culture, which I think uh, Brad Bird also enjoys. And as you've said, it just does a really good job of setting up things that pay off later, uh, good character development, and it's, it's a story that appeals to little boys especially. Just finding this friend that's also kind of a pet that makes you a cool person through association. Uh, all of these things. What about you, Dan? Where does the movie land for you? Yeah, I'm right up there with you. I think it's amazing to me how well every piece of this movie fits together into just a whole piece of entertainment. The animation fits the story, which fits the sound design, which fits the setting, which fits the theme very well, which fits the character in this kind of this kid trying to discover himself in this very rigid classical America. It, it all just fits together so well and it's really entertaining. And there's a sense of danger about everything, but also just a joy and innocence of seeing this robot encounter the world and Hogarth revealing in himself all this inner strength and depth as he teaches the robot and cares for this robot. And it's really emotional. It really struck me this time how much this movie sets up the thematic question of like being a hero who's or being a weapon and that that causes harm to people or being a hero who always uses their power for good and how like every single character and plot point almost, I mean, there's some, there's a little bit of throwaway here and there. That's just kind of fun, but almost all of this movie is very much for setting up that theme and that question and the payoff of it is really profound and it makes for a phenomenal story, really well crafted. It's one that's personally really meaningful for me. I feel that maybe I've been a little bit generous. This is a movie that for me is a masterpiece. It's up there. It gets our masterpiece rating for me. It gets an 8 out of 8 tour day good. I was pretty sure it was going to when I, I picked it. I did not have any reservations whatsoever. I, I do feel like the signature edition doesn't really add anything. It maybe detracts a little, but not enough to knock it down. But this this is a seminal piece of American animation. It's very American and I really connected with it, and I give it I give it my highest recommendation. I think if you haven't seen this one, you got to go out and see it. It's a great one. Awesome. Now, what about thirty three? Dan is being thirty three <laughs> uh, exceptionally good, or where does that land so far? Well, I'm only a few days into it thus far. I would say so far it's very good because I feel like. I can say I'm mid-30s now, so I feel like a little more grown up, but I, I still have a little bit of youthful vigor in me. Like, if you double my age, I am still would still be younger than or the average life expectancy of a upper-middle-class white man. So I feel like I still have my best years ahead of me, too. Oh, wow. That's great. <laughs> that wraps up our discussion of The Iron Giant, 1999. A high-rated one for us. Enters our 15 club, eight plus a seven, gets us to 15. <laughs> We've only had a couple of those, so I'm glad to have, have brought it to the pod. Definitely. So far, only one uh, 16 to date is a Groundhog Day. That's right. Yeah. I did a couple weeks ago, I did a whole debrief on all of our ratings so far, and 
I think we have maybe two or three movies in the 15 club, maybe not three or four. And then we have one in the 16 club, two, two eights, as Brian mentioned. But what about next week, Brian? What are we going to be watching? So next week, I've picked a movie that came to mind watching this one. It's one that I covered back in my blog series in 2013 on my 100 favorite movies at that time, which up to now I haven't given a solo episode to. But I, I think people won't mind if I fudge it a little bit and, to, and just throw it on the table for discussion. But I thought it was relevant because it's got some of the same themes of being a kid growing up and like what, what is the role model you're going to look to. This is The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, and it is the one live-action film effort of Dr. Seuss. I think it's from uh, the later 50s. Well, I haven't seen this one. I, I remember seeing it in your film series, and I'm looking forward to giving it a watch and talking about it next week. Well, thanks for arranging the birthday party, Dan. It was very cool seeing a movie in an exclusive theater setting. And now that we get to record in person, is awesome too. Nature is healing, as they say. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, listeners. Have a good one. Join us again.